If the question is whether banks have enough bank capital to supply sufficient credit to support the recovery, we believe that the answer is no. Welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Hanna Jaffe-Walt. Today is Wednesday, September 30th, and that was Jose Vignales, director of the IMF's Monetary and Capital Markets Department, you heard at the top of the podcast. The International Monetary Fund is set to release its World Economic Outlook tomorrow, in which they predict what the global economy will look like in 2010. David, on the show today, you get obsessed with a YouTube video. You make it sound like it's about something you can't look at at work. <laughs> it is about economics. All right. First, we got to do our indicator. We'll see how dirty your video is. Our indicator, David? <laughs> uh, our indicator is 45 zillion. Oh, sorry. It's just a B. It's just $45 billion. It's a, it's a payment. It's actually a prepayment. Right. That is money that the FDIC wants from banks it insures. So here's what's happening. The FDIC, of course, is the agency that insures our bank deposits, and Basically, they're almost broke. They have this insurance fund that's made up of all the fees banks pay to get insurance coverage. And every time a bank fails, the FDIC has to use some of that fund. And normally the fees are enough to cover the failures. But this year, this year, uh, it's not a normal year. And in fact, any day now, the 100th bank of the year will fail. Right. So the FDIC has this problem. And earlier in the year, they raised fees on banks. So banks had to pay more into the fund. That helped a little. Now they need more. And so they're proposing this thing. They're saying that the banks that they insure should prepay them for three years. So it's kind of like if I'm your car insurer, David, and I say, okay, I'll insure your car, but instead of the regular monthly premiums, how about you pay me three years worth of premiums right now? How about not? (laughs) Right. So it's a lot of money. And actually, when the FDIC first raised premiums several months back, I called this community banker, Salvatore Marenka. He's the president and CEO of Cattaraugus County Bank in Little Valley, New York. And he was really upset about them raising the fees back then. So I called him now and I said, you know, is what's happening now, is this kind of like, you know, your car insurer saying, pay me for three years in advance. And he says, yes, it is exactly like that, but with one major difference. How would your insurance bill uh, be like to be related to everybody who drives a sports car or a race car or a Corvette when perhaps you're a safe driver driving a, a station wagon? And that's what's happening with our FDIC premiums. You're saying have- the, the sports car, the Corvette, is like Citibank, Bank of America, big banks, as opposed to your You can name bank. it. Wall Street banks, mega banks, uh, those banks that have did silly, imprudent, perhaps even criminal things. I'm paying for their sins. Salvatore's bank has $150 million in assets, so he's still just trying to figure out exactly how much he'll owe the FDIC for this prepayment. But he expects it'll be close to three-quarters of a million dollars. He actually described for me this picture of him going into the vault and trying to figure out how much money he needs to hand over to them. And he says, you know, that's money that he can't make a return on or reinvest in his community. There are some banks that say they're actually okay with the FDIC plan because it's a prepayment. And because it's a prepayment, the accounting is a little bit different on their books. So it's for them, it's not just it's not as bad as having to fork over a, a higher premium. 
And remember that the FDIC still has a huge line of credit with the U.S. government that it can tap if it needs. And at the end of the day, the government stands behind the FDIC and your deposit. So as the FDIC says over and over again, don't worry, your deposits, they are safe, safe, safe. But this is a sign of just how bad things have been in the banking world recently. All right, now on to that YouTube video. Yeah, the video has everything. It is animated. It has stick figures dancing around. It's kind of funny. And my favorite part is that it is about the economics of healthcare. David, you're a geek. <laughs> it's not just me. A few listeners sent in the link. Uh, it's it's by this cartoonist Andy Lubershane, and it makes the case that the way to fix healthcare is to basically get rid of insurance companies and let the government be our insurer. So here's how it begins, and you're just going to have to imagine the little stick figures helping to illustrate everything. Why we need government-run, universal, socialized, call it whatever you want, health insurance. All right, so we all know from basic civics class and just being alive that a lot of essential services are already government-run, universal, socialized, whatever you want to call it. Think water treatment, police, fire, postal service, coast guard, All those things you know are going to be there for you every single day without even thinking about them. We all pay our taxes, and the government uses the money to pay for the things everyone needs just to get by. Now, healthcare is just as essential as any of these services. Sure, a few of us may be lucky enough to make it through our whole lives without some kind of medical problem, but the rest of us depend on healthcare at some point during our lives just to get by. So, Hannah, I actually I played this for the first time. Uh, in the evening, and um, I, I kept the volume really low because my wife was in bed, and, and I didn't want to reading a book, and I didn't want to bother her. But when, when the thing ended, she looked up from her book because she's been listening the whole time, even though it was really quiet. It just grabbed her attention, and she said, "The government being our insurance company, why? What's wrong with that argument? That sounds good." She was convinced by the YouTube. Yeah, she she wanted to hear more. She wanted to hear more about it. Right, and and just to be clear, we're not talking about the public option. We're talking about what's sometimes called single payer. That means one entity, the government or a different entity, paying all the healthcare bills, being our health insurance company. And after all, this is how the healthcare system works in Canada and in England. Everyone pays into the system through taxes, and they automatically get health insurance run by the government. So. This video kept playing through my mind, and I wanted to hear two people argue it out. Should the government be our health insurance company? Today, David, we grant your wish. We've got Donna Smith and Stuart Butler. Let's start with Donna. So Donna is a legislative advocate for the California Nurses Association. And to her, the message in this video really makes sense because of her own experience with health insurance. She and her family over the last couple of years has had a series of chronic diseases. She was diagnosed with uterine cancer, and the family got into a really bad financial situation. They had to sell off their home and declare bankruptcy in 2004. And all of this happened while Donna actually had health insurance. She not only had health insurance, she had disability insurance, she had a health savings account. And to her, it just doesn't make sense that she could end up in such financial straits. We had uh, what's called a maximum out-of-pocket exposure on an annual basis of $10,000 per family. And my, one of my husband's illness uh, crisis situations happened in December of one year. We racked up that $10,000 maximum out-of-pocket. Calendar year tipped over to January 1st. Your body doesn't know that your insurance clock resets and your deductibles reset and all those things reset. So within a very 
very short amount of time, we racked up another 10000 in out-of-pocket expenses. No way to pay it. By that time, you have tapped out every credit card. We had borrowed against used cars. We'd tapped out family and friends. You've done everything you can do to stay afloat at that point. Now, by the way, if you recognize Donna Smith's story, it's probably because she was in Michael Moore's movie, Sicko. And so sitting next to her in the studio here was Stuart Butler, sitting just at her left elbow there. And he's going to argue the other side. And when when he heard that story, he immediately said, look, no reasonable person should have to go through what Donna went through. It's horrible. But he says it does not mean that we want the government as our insurance company. Stuart works for the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C., and he also happens to be from Britain, a place where the government does run the health care system. So he has his own personal experience shaping his views of things. My mother died in the system. I have an older brother who has congestive heart disease and so on. And what happens in both of those cases is that somebody, uh, not me, not my mother, decides what she would get or what my brother gets. My brother, somebody asked me here once when I, a doctor actually that I have about my older brother and they said, well, doesn't he, isn't he on the list for a heart transplant? And I just really, I didn't know whether to laugh or to cry because the fact is there's no way my brother who is 67 years old is going to get a heart transplant. It's a rational decision, uh, economic decision and medical decision made by somebody in Britain, not anybody you can talk to but a board, a regional authority, and so on. Hannah, and and Stewart's story, just to be fair, it doesn't prove that private insurers would necessarily be better. I mean, private insurers could also end up in the same spot of deciding to limit care to try and keep costs down. Right, but you get a sense where both sides are coming from. So, David, now you wanted to have a debate, each side making economic arguments for why they think they are right. Um, and let's let's just start with cost. So Donna argues that having the government be the insurer for the whole country would save a lot of money. If we're going to remove ourselves from the ethical and moral issues, if you can do that, and I trust that a lot of people can do it because they are doing it right now, but if you take away all of those issues, even the California Nurses Association study showed that it'd be a $300 billion savings every day, billion dollars a year to go to a Medicare for all type model. You take out this waste and in, in, in the system. We talk about abuse of the Medicare system, but there is abuse in the healthcare system across the board. Taking out up to 30% of cost goes to administrative costs. That's not just insurance company profits and moving the paper and utilization review and all the things that happen in insurance companies. But on the provider sides, they have to have huge billing departments, huge, huge mechanisms to deal with all the inherent hundreds of insurance companies, hundreds of different plans, hundreds of different iterations of things that they have to deal with as we provide health care through a private insurance model. Let's say we add a public option to the mess we've got right now. I tend to call it the monstrosity we have right now. Let's add just a public option to that so that we've got now, instead of pick a number, 1,400 insurance uh, plans, we have 1,401 insurance plans. That really doesn't get us a significant reduction in the cost of paperwork and dealing with all of those different scenarios. Stuart, uh, she's making the case that you hear a lot that Medicare has much lower uh, overhead and administrative Mm -hmm. costs than do private insurers. Now, when I think about that economically, I don't quite understand why that is because I would think that private insurers would have every incentive to try and 
do that as best they can so they wouldn't have to charge so much to mm-hmm. people. Um, and some of it may be scale. What, what do you make of that? I mean, well, uh, you do yes. look at Medicare and you just say, well, well it does seem like a very simple billing process. People seem happy with it. <laughs> Let's disentangle this a little bit. You can have very low administrative costs as a business. If you really don't track inventory, if you don't sort of uh, make sure your accounts receivable are up to date, uh, if you don't spend time advertising and this sort of thing, you can get uh, you can get administrative costs down, and you can have a business that goes out of business very quickly or has huge cost overruns and so on. In addition, Medicare does quite frankly a lousy job. Uh, uh, looking at things like fraud, overbilling, and so on. It doesn't question the things. The very things that irritate most people about private insurance, you know, don't happen in Medicare. And, and that means they're not caught. They're not, people are not challenged to say, you know, do you really need, need to go into hospital? Donna, wh- why would a for-profit insurance company have more overhead than they need? If there was some way they could improve the billing or reduce unnecessary advertising or something like that, why wouldn't they do it? I think they would do it. I think they would re- they would raise their profits however they have to do that. Underwriting is one of the administrative costs they would probably not ever really take away. Utilization review is probably something they would never really take a hit on. Medical review and medical claims management, they would never take away those things because they're always going to be think, they're always going to look at us as medical losses. They're always going to look at us as economic tools in their, in their toolbox. And that's, that's part of the problem for me. Advertising, why do we need to, why do we need all this advertising in the System. It's really, you know, it's really quite frustrating for me as a consumer to think that I pay premiums into a system, and I promise you, when the stock market takes a downturn like it did the last year, they're not going to take a hit in CEO salaries. I don't care whether they call themselves nonprofits or not, whichever health insurance company it is. The CEO didn't take any cut in salary. I'll tell you what got cut, and that was medical claims payment. Stuart, I saw you shaking your head. Well, sure. I mean, advertising means telling people what you're offering them. I see removing advertising as the first step to removing actual information uh, from people. And I think whether you want a single payer or any other kind of system, um, to start killing off information is not the first step. Um, now, high salaries, uh, well, you know, um, if, if you have a situation where, I mean, first of all, the, the impact of high salaries on the average cost is, is minimal anyway. But, but if you have high cost uh, salaries in a system, competition and selection and so on, if you, if you have the choice to decide between one company that has high, high salaries and huge bonuses for its uh, employees and other ones doesn't, I know which one I would pick, all other th- things being equal. So, you know, I think if you give people information, if you let people know things like what to say, and they can actually make choices which typically they cannot do today, you're going to deal with a lot of these issues. So, David, I felt like this conversation, it just, it became clear that these are two people who see the world and just read their experiences in the world completely differently. So Donna, on the one hand, has her experience. Her She's had high deductibles. She went through bankruptcy. She hears stories about people being denied coverage and dropped from their insurers. And it seems pretty clear this is something the government should do and can do better than what we have right now. And Stewart thinks the government will probably do worse because there's no financial incentive for them to be efficient or to give you what you want. If you don't like your insurance company now, you can punish them by switching to a different insurance company. But if it's just the government offering the insurance plan, you don't have a choice. You're stuck. So we're going to focus now on that question. Who has a stronger incentive to do a good job, private industry or government? We're going to start with Stuart this time. And just to note, he's going to use the term Medicare for all. That's just another way of saying government-run insurance for everyone. 
I do think some people do live under the illusion that a single-payer system or Medicare for all basically means uh, go to the doctor, get whatever you and the doctor think you want, go get it today, no paperwork, and somebody else pays. Uh, that, I think, is, is, is a, a simplistic, mythical vision. It's not going to be like that if you go down that road. And therefore, you've got to look at what the current Medicare system does, which is, in, of course, it is hugely out of whack financially over the long haul. Are we going to fix that, or are we just going to say we're going to make it even bigger by having everybody in? Parts of Medicare, in the managed care parts of managed care, uh, actually do restrict what people get. They do make decisions and so on. And are you comfortable with that? Uh, how Should you expand that more broadly to, the, say, first of all, the whole of Medicare and, and eliminate the fee-for-service part? Is, and if you're going to set up this sort of system, the government is then going to have to make decisions about who gets what, whether we're going to pay that bill, whether we're going to allow you to, to do that. But, they're going to, but they have politics to deal with instead of shareholders. In addition, they have politics to deal with. Um, you know, I mean, this, and a this, very different motivation. Oh, I, no question about it. But, uh, but the motivation in government is mixed, to put it mildly. <laughs> uh, and there are going to be a lot of, a lot of people who uh, make things in the healthcare area and provide things who are going to come and lobby that insurer. Uh, in ways to make sure that they get paid and they get paid what they think is fair, which is precisely what's going on right now in the political system. Neither way is is perfect. However, when the profit motive is the primary, the primary driving force, insurance companies answer to their stockholders. That's who they answer to and their boards of directors who want to make sure that they're performing well financially. Our government, our government, and if it's not operating this way, it's up to us to make sure that it does. Our government is us. It's not some external out there, icky, terrible body sitting out there. Our government is made up of our fellow citizens elected to represent us and do a good job for us. I also have to answer one thing that that Stuart talked about very quickly, about the hiding of information. Insurance companies hide an awful lot of information from us. I have a far better shot of getting information out of my government than I do out of a private insurance company that doesn't want, that has a vested interest in not telling me the details of claims denial and those kinds of issues. Stuart, is, is the problem that we have insurance companies that are driven by making profits? No, it's not that. In fact, most of the uh, of the insurance companies are not profit-making organizations anyway. They're non-profit. But let's just for the moment, let me point out a few things. For most of the e- economy... The idea of people looking to give you the best value for money and the motivation of, for doing that means you get some profit. We generally think as Americans is a really good way of getting the best things we have around the country. Donna is absolutely correct in the case of saying if you have a situation where you make profit by denying people coverage or refusing to cover people who are really sick. That's a problem. And I totally agree with her that when you look at the current insurance system, there are fundamental problems. But I'm very concerned about this idea that we just go to a fee-for-service system and the government is sort of has, you know, this selfless motivation. Anybody, and, and Donna knows this, anybody who spent any time in the Congress in a hearing knows what actually goes on. Uh, in the government, if the government runs a system like this, the government may not be interested in profit. They're interested in cutting costs. They're interested in budget control. Uh, and then they're under pressure from parts of the health insurance industry including the insurers, but not only the insurers, to make sure that those parts are protected. They give money to members of Congress. 
this all ends up with a very confused and, and very distorted system if you have the government running. This idea that the government running means only public-spirited people will make really sensible decisions that every consumer will like, I think is very naive about the way the government, a government system would actually work. All right, podcast listeners, that's your choice. You can have an evil profit-making company handling your health insurance or... You can have a lobbyist-controlled, self-interested, big government doing it. Wow. Way to promote a constructive dialogue, David. I would put it this way. You can have insurance provided by a company that has every motivation to try to keep you, the customer, happy. Or you can have a friendly government filled with people you've elected to act in your best interest. Yeah, that doesn't really help either. All right. So on a future podcast, we are going to look at every single healthcare system in the world, all the countries, and we are going to explain how they work and how well they do. <laughs> we, we are going to do that. You, you can do that, David. <laughs> Speaking of other countries, though, before we let Stuart and Donna walk away, we did say, OK, you have your pick. You can transport your life to any country in the world, any health insurance system. Which country would you pick? Right now, I would like to live here because I'm insured. Uh, I think it's likely to re- I'm likely to remain insured. I wish my brother was here right now and was insured. If I was in a situation of not having income, uh, not being insured, I'd much rather live in Britain. Donna? From what I know and what I've read about the various countries and what's going on, France ranks first in terms of it, its uh, health care. Which got, has what you want, a, a government Well, it has plan. a mix. It has a mix. It has a mixed system. It does not have a totally government-run system. It has a mixed system. And many of the countries in the world do have a mix of public and private option systems. But the private systems they have in place would look very different from what most Americans would recognize as the private system in place. The public system is dominant. The private system and plays a, a, a role of, of, of being supplemental. And I like that mechanism better. You know, and I think I listen to Stuart and I feel for his brother. And when he says he wishes his brother were here and insured, there are two parts to that. I love being in the United States. I don't want to live somewhere else, but I believe we're better people than what we're exhibiting in our health care system right at the moment. I believe we can fix this and make it more equitable, and I believe we can make it better for our economy, and I think we will. Okay. I like this question, David. Tran- transport yourself to the health care system of your choice. Where would you choose? I'd love to hear what people think. You can drop that in the comments of our blog, npr.org slash money. Or you can just send us an email at planetmoney at npr.org. A huge thank you today to Caitlin Kenny and Jacob Gans, who put this and all of our podcasts together. They shape them. They help edit them. They stay at work way, way, way too late. They deliver me candy corn in the studio while I'm voicing the podcast. They do? That's very nice for you. Um, and while, while I really wish it were not so, I have to say that today officially is Jacob's last day. I know. It's a very sad day for us because Jacob is a fabulous producer and he's funny and thoughtful and he tells us we suck when we suck. He's everything you'd want a producer to be. He has great hair also. And he's, for you listeners, he is the person who picks a lot of the really great music you hear on the show. Um, If you heard that podcast we did on the CFTC and the SEC not wanting to merge but needing to work together, you might have noticed the song we played was U2's Two Hearts Beat as One. That's Jacob. Jacob, we're going to miss you. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Fana Joffe-Walt. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.